Well, if you have an infusion booklet, we have 41 blanks ahead of us today. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we are doing our new members curriculum as part of our five-week series here in the church. And so um, if you need one, get up and go get it. Keith, there you go. You were kind of looking for permission, I believe. There we are. We have a side door. Oh, it's okay. I'm good. I just... So it's, it's, yeah, that's helpful. So a little shout out, though, to Veta Printing right here, I will say, as we have many representatives of Veta Printing with us today. Phil, of course, Veta, but also Caitlin and Jeremy and Don, a couple of uh, Phil's friends are with us today. I think simply because they wanted to check out, did Phil do a good job of delivering what they had worked on? So... Uh, That said, Ashley and others, thank you for the work that you've gotten done. And because I know he's a sensitive soul, Aldo, thank you for printing up the children's ministry curriculum. And come Easter time, when you guys see some fresh new bulletins that we've got, those are also courtesy of Premier Printing, or at least Aldo subset Premier Printing, something along those lines. Guys, just so you are aware, we look way better than we deserve to look as a church. Our print shop stuff, boy, it comes off crisp. You see us after that, and you think, hmm, that doesn't seem to match. Our graphics, they look pretty good. And then you see us sometimes, and you think, hmm. But that's just the way it is. You always try to put a, a little bit better appearance than you probably deserve. Anyway, in our beautifully designed books, today we are in chapter two. The lesson is called The Great gospel. And I usually, whenever we come to a passage of scripture, I try to think about how do I want to introduce this to you? I think about sometimes a funny story or something that'll grab your attention or something along those lines. But hasn't it been kind of God so far today through our songs, through the testimonies, through our meditation over communion, through Brad's prayer, through the scriptures that Brad read for us to have the gospel laid out already In one sense, I could just give you the blanks. We could wrap up church. We could be done in 45 minutes today. And you might think, wow, that was still a full, satisfying meal. And it would be. Because the good news has been compared to a diamond. One of those beautifully cut diamonds that you can examine from one angle, then another angle, then another angle, and never tire of seeing the beauty of what God has done in the good news. Because when we talk about the gospel, that's what we're we're really uh, sort of interpreting, is the phrase good news, the euangelion, if you're talking about the Greek. The gospel is simply a message that's good. And in the Old Testament, from those two passages that Brad read in Isaiah 40, and then in 52, The good news, what a herald would come to talk about, was not really a message about the herald, was it? A king would never send his messenger out so that the messenger would get up and talk about himself. No, the messenger came with a proclamation for the king, a kingdom quality message. And the messenger needed to fit that message, but he wasn't the content of the message. 
And that's kind of how this chapter ties into last week. Guys, last week we looked at the church. And we realized that we're not the main point. The church is called together as a church, not because of all of our strengths, all of our weaknesses, all of our personality, all of the ways that we fit together because of the way that we live our lives. We're bound together by something bigger than us. And in one sense, you could define a church, though we defined it a few different ways last week, you could define it as the assembly of the anointed heralds of the good news. That's who we are. This is when we gather together to be rekindled in the message. A message that Isaiah in chapter 40 says has to do something with beholding our God, looking at the one who's going to come and save us in our desperate situation. The good news that Isaiah said, your God then that you're beholding, he reigns. When we've looked at Mark so far and Jesus came proclaiming the good news, it was all about a kingdom. But the problem is that the arrival of a kingdom is not good news for the enemies of that kingdom. And not one of you were born as members of the kingdom of God. The tragic story of humanity is that we all enter this world as opponents of God's kingdom. We're enemies of the advance of God across the world. And the story of the gospel is how we get transferred from being enemies to being citizens from being outsiders to being family members, from being opponents to being friends. It's this great transition. It's what makes up the songs that we sing. It's what really sort of populates everything that we do. A while ago, we were in the book of 1 Peter as a church. We called this series, Not My Home. And we had all around our church at the time, we had all these signs And it was little things from sneakers, picture of sneakers with the phrase over top of it, this is not my home. Why? To remind us that what the world offers in fashion, it's not where we settle our souls. Right, Christina? Phil learned that lesson, I think, over that time, because I think he took that poster. We tried to make them as varied and as wide as we wanted. What was something that could kind of sing to your soul that you'd take one of our posters home from church and keep it and you could sort of remember, yeah, this is not my home. Mine was a picture of something that looked kind of like a barn because when I get to go out and sit in my old barn in the backyard, sometimes I just sit in there and I think, ah, this could be my home. Not because I got in a fight with Christine and she kicked me out to the barn or something along those lines, but just my soul sort of settles when I get there. We kind of want that sort of thing, don't we? And so I took the one that said, this is not my home. Ryan, though, I think took one, and I always forget the name of the actual, I think it was a line shaft shop, is that right? It was a picture of an old piece of uh, woodworking equipment, and it had this big leather strap that was attached and that went up, and I saw it, Zoe made it into a a sign, and Ryan said, oh, a line shaft shop, and I, I knew that it was a piece of woodworking equipment, but I didn't know what a line shaft shop was, because for me, If I'm going to have any piece of equipment in my uh, woodworking shop run, what I do is I take the electric cord and I plug it into the wall. But in a line shaft shop, things work a little differently. Every piece of equipment functions because there's a leather strap that attaches that to a big shaft that runs all the way down the, the barn or the old factory. 
And if tension is applied between that piece of machinery and the functioning line shaft, well, then that piece of machinery starts to function. And when you take the tension off, well, then that piece of machinery shuts off. It's much like an old-fashioned kind of electric circuit. That's what the gospel ought to be at a church. The gospel ought to be that line shaft that runs everything else in the Christian life. For us to try to figure out how are we going to change, take the tension away from the gospel, got no hope. It's just like unplugging the piece of equipment. Try to figure out where does real Christian unity come from? Take the tension off the gospel, disconnect it from that functioning line, and you've got no working source of power for that piece of equipment anyway. We, yesterday, we the elders got to sit with some pastors in Nepal. We've talked to you about our connection with a guy named Tirtha over there, and he invited us for something that was happening Saturday evening for them, Saturday morning for us. He invited us to join with them in talking about what was going on in their world and hoping that we could bring some encouragement to them. One of the things we tried to remind them is that we are in awe of what's going on in their setting. Over 140 people being saved over this last year because of the evangelistic work. I think we want to be able to primarily communicate to them. We'd love to see what's going on there happening here. Faithfulness in the midst of suffering. We're in awe of the work that's going on. And so I tried to communicate that to Tirtha, but he said, no, we'd like you to teach us on suffering. (laughs) I'm not going to speak to you about the suffering of my life in order to provide you examples about how to suffer in yours. So what did I do? I found three passages that I thought if we put gospel tension on them, could begin to function for them. Why is it you can suffer? Because Christ suffered. Why is it that you can find joy in the midst of your suffering? Because of the gospel, God in his sovereignty redeems all of our suffering. Now that's a message that despite the fact that they suffer worse than I do, when we finished our time together, one of the men said, hey, there's 200 families in my churches and they have no or in my church setting and they have no no food could you please pray for them we're like well yes we do want to pray for them and we hope that we can be a means of support to them as well but how do i talk to them about suffering i try to attach that leather strap to the main shaft of the gospel it's why we can be generous It's why everything that functions within our church and within our individual lives makes sense because that one thing is most important. Now, I'm going to give away the end of this sermon by reading you a quote that used to function for us a lot in our church. It's by Charles Spurgeon, and it goes like this. We will never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. So keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon thy mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him, and he will never fail you. 
And in one appeal, just to connect this one last time to what we talked about last week, if you're at home, and part of the reason that you feel like you can't make it into our setting is because you've been looking and seeing too many deficiencies in yourself. I feel a sense that these last couple of years have created social uh, deficiencies in you, and you just don't know how you fit. Or you look at your past and you think, man, I have just failed too much, or there's just too much that feels corrupt and broken within me. I just don't know that I fit in a setting like that anymore. I want to just let you know there's not a single person who's arrived today, or at least let me correct you if you did, who thought you made it and qualified for this meeting because of your past and your performance. When we set all of ourselves up against the holiness of God, we all see deficiency and none of us should be impressed. We're the man coming and saying, beating our breast and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. So let me just say, welcome back. We'd love to have you here. We're glad you join us like this, but you're welcome and you belong here. Because this is to be a community where we don't look to ourselves because we never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. But instead, we come to look at Jesus because he's the one who's the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, I said last week we're going to take a minute to look at one passage and then we're going to move on. And because I told you we have 41 blanks to get to, I'm going to really try to do the verse this week in one minute. So, Michael, a 60-second timer. It's not really going to work out. But 1 Corinthians 15, what Brad read for us, says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared. What you have right there in those verses is probably the earliest Christian creed ever recorded. There's the Apostles' Creed, creeds that came out of different church councils, and those are early, but this is probably the earliest. Commentators that are talking about 1 Corinthians 15 say Paul's quoting something here, and it seems to be ancient. It's the stuff that the early church says was most important. Not the church's relationship to Rome, Not the church's understanding of the spiritual gifts. Not the church and their interdependence together. Paul was addressing all those things in 1 Corinthians. But when he said one thing is of first importance, it was a message about Jesus. He said two things happened in accordance with the scriptures, and he gave proof for them. The death of Jesus, proof being that he was buried. The resurrection of Jesus, the proof being that he appeared. That's the structure of the passage. And the thing that I want to remind you why we've dedicated an entire chapter to something is that the gospel is not what we would consider the portico of the church. You get what the portico is? The portico has functioned for us because of COVID way more than it really ought to. The way it was designed was to be a place that would keep the rain off and give you a little entrance into the building where the important stuff happens. Too often Christians have thought about the gospel like a portico. An entrance point, how you get into the kingdom. 
But life in the kingdom ought to be lived not in the gospel portico, but in all the other really important rooms, the discipleship rooms, the sanctification rooms, the how do you educate your children rooms, the how are you baptized and how do you take communion rooms, those kinds of things. The point we'd be making is this. The gospel isn't the portico. It's the whole building. The gospel isn't the the diving board into the pool. It's the entire body of water. What we do in, as Christians is to celebrate the good message that the king whom we behold has saved us through his son, through his death, through his resurrection, which are both tied to scripture and which both have historical reference points. That's why we've got a whole chapter on this. So let's talk about the gospel. Let's get into our first blank. And the first blank comes right there where we talk about the gospel being defined narrowly. Rather than the gospel simply being some portion of a, you know, a musical style or some sort of vernacular for the truth, give me the gospel, brother. What we're talking about in the gospel is the narrow definition of what I just said. The death, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in Paul's lingo, sometimes when he talks about the gospel, he just references the cross. Which is why that one song that we sang, Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin, and by his death, I live again. It's the cross and the death that are kind of central in that song, right? That's because oftentimes when Paul means the entire gospel, the good news that the prophesied Messiah came in the form of a man, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, rose again over death, and rose again to invite us into a new way of living and relating to God, and then will come again once more for us after ascending to heaven. That's kind of a long thing, but it's basically this. It's the story of Jesus. It's the way God saves. And if that is so important that the entire Old Testament leads up to it, and if it's so important that the entire New Testament looks back to it, then it seems unwise for us as Christians ever to move on from it. That the story of Jesus was foretold in the Old Testament. That the story of Jesus will be celebrated at the end of time means that the entire life cycle of a Christian and the entire life cycle of a church ought to be predominantly centered around and connected to, that there ought to be tension all the time connecting what we want to have function in our life to the way that that one main shaft is running through the church and running through our souls. It's of first importance. And so the gospel needs to be defined narrowly. And so every believer, every member of this room, everybody watching at home needs to be able to ask this question. Have I related personally to Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection? Am I trusting my life or Jesus' life? Am I trusting my payment for my sins, my guilt, my suffering, my penance, the way that I apologize? Or am I trusting Jesus' death for my sin? It's vitally important that we don't tell God that the main thing he did in human history didn't matter because I've got this. I'm good enough or I'm sorry enough. So thanks for sending Jesus, but I didn't really need him. We never want to live that kind of a life. We never want to sing or write that kind of a song and we never want to have that as our testimony. Thanks God, but I'm good. That's not the testimony of the Christian. Narrowly defined, the gospel is about Jesus, 
But sometimes scripture also talks broadly about the gospel. It doesn't just talk narrowly about the work of Jesus. It also broadly talks. And so that's our next definition there. The gospel is defined broadly. And it's defined broadly in such a way that we see that the gospel has a powerful work to transform those who are narrowly connected to it. In other words, the gospel narrowly, and by the way, some of my letters are off, so in case some of you are looking confused, like, hey, that says C in my book, and it says A up there. I know, the person who put this together just didn't know the alphabet. So, and just in case, I've told that joke before, that's me, not Ashley, not anybody else, okay? I'm the guy who screwed up, so... Uh, the gospel is defined broadly. The gospel is defined narrowly. Everybody needs to be connected to that message. But once connected, there is power available for transformation. And so the gospel can be called this work of doing big things across the world. What we want to talk about, though, flipping on from here, then, is how the gospel is accomplished. In, order, in other words, What actually happens when the good news is connecting to somebody's life? How does that tension actually function? And then after the gospel being accomplished, how is it applied? What does it do? Those are the two main things that the rest of the chapter is about. So the gospel is accomplished this way. It is accomplished through the electing, calling, and regenerating work of God. And our first blank there, A, is electing. God's act of electing, according to Wayne Grudem, is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any unforeseen or any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now, that electing work, that choosing work of God, it is connected to three other scriptural realities. The first one's called foreknowledge. That's your next blank there at point one. And it's a good thing I gave you so much space to write that in. I know that's what you were thinking anyway, so I might as well just say it. Foreknowledge is this. It is God's active setting of his affection upon his chosen people. Which is breathtaking when you consider the way that knowing someone is used in Scripture. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. It's just the two of them. And what happens that creates the next generation? It says Adam knew his wife Eve. That language is used of a sexual union throughout scripture. And the doctrine of foreknowledge says it's not just that God saw out into the future what you were going to do and decided to pick all the right people just because he, like some sort of emperor in Star Wars, could foresee what was going to happen. It's not that. It's that God set his powerful, life-changing affection upon people before they even had anything to do. So God's electing work involves this setting of his affection in foreknowledge, point one, and then point two, his predestinating work. So to predestinate, or predestination is a big word that comes means to decree or foreordain the circumstances and the destiny of people according to God's sovereign will. Salvation is not based on anything that a person does or does not do, but solely on God's gracious love toward that individual. 
So the fact that in God's choosing work, he chooses to set his affection on people. And then because he's to set his affection on people, he chooses to work all circumstances in their life toward the end of their being saved and drawn to him. Also then ends in this amazing reality. Catastrophic division among Christians who don't understand how that works. I hate to say it, guys. But one of the weirdest places to start in talking about the good news is to recognize that this idea that God chose to save us, not because of us, but because of him, has caused more tension and more division in the church. Because in some places, we have to ask the question, who's the hero of the Bible? And do you know how wrong it would have been for me to sit with pastors from Nepal yesterday? And say, our church is radically successful because we're the heroes of it. And so we want to teach you how to be heroes just like us. Because the story of Trinity Church is the story of heroic men. That would seem wrong, wouldn't it? But it seems familiar when we think about the way we want to live our lives. Don't you want to be the hero of your story? Don't you want to be sort of like little orphan Annie? Yes, an orphan technically, but cute and so adorable that you just had to get adopted. But that's not the way the Bible tells our story. The Bible doesn't tell the story of God as though we're the heroes. And that begins all the way with how did we even get selected? Not because of our merits, not because of our strength or our intelligence or our beauty but because God sovereignly chose to put his electing grace upon us. Now, if you struggle with that, I just want to let you know I'm not making it up. There's a whole mess of passages you can look at. Some I've printed up. Others you can take a look at. They accent the fact that the, the saving work of God begins with the choice of God. And so because that's what the Bible says, it is, though hard to understand, it is the place that every grateful Christian should start. That God doesn't owe us because we were so impressive, but that we owe God because he was so loving. We say it this way at the very end, point three. The function of this doctrine of election is to look back and see the activity of God in your salvation. Not to look ahead in life and to evaluate those who are or are not God's elect. So just to sort of head you off at the past in case you're making some judgments about us as a church. Because we believe God chose sovereignly before time, we don't believe that he gave us this supernatural ability to figure out who he chose, and so we get to pick our friends, and we get to pick who we share the gospel with. Instead, we want to be like Gus, a man we've been praying for who since October has been in and out of hospitals and therapy, who has been weak and in the process has, according to his testimony yesterday, uh, a couple days ago, shared the gospel with over 200 separate individuals using one simple tactic. Every person he talks to wants to ask the question, hey, can I come in and ask you a couple questions? And rather than just being agreeable, Gus decides to be kind of stubborn and say, yes, I will answer your questions if you will answer one of mine. And they have to, don't they? They need to get his answers, and so what do they do? They say, sure. They ask their questions, and then before they leave, Gus said, you promised to answer me a question. If you were to die today and you were to try to get into heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you in, what would you say? Inroad to the gospel, isn't it? 
It's the way he's asking who's the hero of your story. And since you're not a very good hero, let me introduce you to a better one. Since your record really doesn't impress you, it's not going to impress God. So let me give you someone who's actually lived a better life for you. 200 times. Why? It's because God has given Gus direct insight into whom he's chosen. No, Gus doesn't think that way. And that's not the way this doctrine works. For Christians who can see the work of God in them, it is designed so that we look backwards in life and we say, my goodness, I didn't deserve this at all. How did this happen? Not to ask questions of who ought we to befriend, who ought we to let in, who ought we to share the good news with. God's doing some powerful stuff. He doesn't share the whole plan with us, but he tells us enough so we could be impressed. And that's where we try to let this first part of the doctrine move on. That said, we've got a lot of other blanks to go. So here we are. Let's talk a little bit beyond just the electing work of God. Let's talk about B, the calling work of God. And I'm going to move through these next blanks pretty quickly. So you may want to sharpen your pencil. Just give it a little lick. We're going to keep up. When God calls individuals, what he does is take that choice and make it effective in their life. He shares something with them. A picture of the New Testament might be when Lazarus was dead. How did Jesus, who had chosen to bring Lazarus back to life, how did he get him out of there? Said his name. And in calling him, he affected change in him. So this calling, point B, point one, is that God ensures that those he chooses will also freely choose him. (laughs) Let's just move on from that sentence because that's easy to understand, right? But that is the way that it works. When God calls an individual, he affects a change in them so that they then freely choose him whom he has chosen. And point two, this overcomes what theologians call mankind's total, next blank, depravity. It undoes what God has seen fit to allow mankind to experience. That, like I said, we weren't born as God's friends or members of God's kingdom. We were born with a capacity to be able to rebel in every way imaginable. That's what depravity means. You're capable of every sin. Not that you'll commit every sin, but that you're capable of it. That's the dark state of the newly born human soul. David said we conceived in sin. But when God calls individuals, he overcomes that depravity and he works a change in us so that we are now desiring God. And what that does is it brings us to life. And that's what we call regeneration. That's our next blank there. The regenerating work of God is the work where the Holy Spirit brings people into living union with Jesus Christ. Point one there, which if your book says F or your book says C, it ought to be C, but again, you know, alphabet and all that stuff. But point one, all those whom God calls and regenerates will eventually come to him freely. God's grace to us in the end is irresistible. Do you see why I say that God's the hero of this story? He's the one who sets his affection on people, chooses them, and then makes it possible 
for them in their freedom to choose him. He's the one who got this done. And what that means is he's the one who gets the credit. Now, let me use an Old Testament analogy to try and help describe what this, this, how this kind of works. There's a group of people that were uh, listening to a prophet. His name was Ezekiel. They had sinned greatly. They were the people of God, chosen by God, and yet who had rejected God and adopted all the idols of the countries around them. It was a horrible, tragic mistake that God uh, sort of likened to what it would be like if a spouse were to cheat on another. He said, your idolatry feels like adultery to me. And God couldn't leave that sin unpunished, so he sent in an army. That army defeated Judah and then exiled many of them to another country. They couldn't even stay in the land that God had promised to them and given to them and blessed them in because of this sin. It was that heinous. Just like adultery can wreck horrible consequences, there's a certain sense that our idolatry is worse. And so God was allowing Israel to experience the consequences of their sin. Enter in Ezekiel. He came to some of these people who had been exiled far from their land, and he said, you feel a little bit like a graveyard of defeated soldiers, don't you? And the people of Judah could say, yeah, we do. You feel like a big valley that was the scene of a horrible defeat And now all it is is just a big old pile of dry bones. All the carcasses have decayed and all that's left are these dusty dry bones. Is that the way you feel in life? And Judah could say that's exactly the way we feel. Our sins have led us to this point. And the prophecy that Ezekiel gave was that Ezekiel was to see this valley, speak to the valley, and the whole process of of sort of, you know, just gunkifying this, this living army, their defeat, which led to their death, which led to their decay, which led to the graveyard status, was about to become reversed. So all the piles of bones became skeletons. All the skeletons got sinews and tissues and organs and flesh, and then they were just corpses laying there. And then God spoke to them, and breath entered them, And they became an army again. That seems like it should be good news, except for one thing. Every member of that army was still guilty of their sin. They were the idolaters. So do you see how being brought back to life for any one of those soldiers might not be a good thing? Every one of these soldiers had committed idolatry. That's why they died. Every one of these soldiers had rebelled against God, had cheated on their spouse. That's why they were punished. So to be brought back to life might feel like, oh man, you killed me once. I'm still like, I I know what I did before you. How am I okay with you? That's what we're about to talk about in this lesson. Because we just said that God sets his affection on us. He chooses us and calls us, and then he brings us back to life. But if our relationship with God isn't restored, being brought back to life as an enemy of the king isn't really a good thing. So the question, if God does this work of setting his affection on us, calling us and regenerating us, the question is then, how is the gospel 
applied. And that takes us to our next page. What is happening when the gospel actually begins to make a difference in us? And I want you to think about the king and that soldier as the example for all of these. Because what he does is to justify, reconcile, adopt, and glorify. Meaning he doesn't leave those soldiers in that state. Or in our particular case, he doesn't leave us as opponents of the kingdom. He brings us into it. And he does it first legally. Point A is justification, which makes sense because the next word is justification. Justification means that God declares guilty sinners righteous through union with Jesus Christ. Now, this is a gift. First bullet point there. It's a gift coming from God and not as something we achieve. We've made that point. It's also a point in time. Just like once a judge delivers a verdict, it is barring appeals, it is a certain reality. You're declared guilty or you're declared not guilty. And the first thing that God does to every one of those soldiers who's rebelled against him is to say, you no longer are guilty of that sin. I am justifying you. I'm making it, some people have said, just as if I'd never done it. This can be a way of thinking what justified is. And that's amazing. This sin was so devastating that God would uproot his people from a land and he would, he would wreck their lives in such a way that there would have actually been physical death and there would be a spiritual break in their relationship. And God is saying that is so significant that that was the right thing for me to do, but my grace is more significant and then I'm going to reverse that. And he does it like that. With a single swing of his gavel, he declares legally that we're justified. God applies the work of Jesus on our behalf in both a negative and in a positive way. In the negative sense, he forgives our sins by charging them to Jesus instead of to us. But in the positive sense, he credits us with the righteousness by uniting us with Christ and by declaring us righteous in him. So what this involves, is the next bullet point, is an actual forgiveness of sins. So to forgive means to grant relief from payment, to completely cancel a debt, to cease or free resentment, wrath against an offender. Since Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, we are now no longer liable to pay the penalty ourselves. Our sins can be forgiven. It's a crazy transaction. That if you received a letter in the bank or in the mail from your bank saying someone has come along, saw the debt that you owed to us, and because of their vast wealth has paid off your debt, your mortgage is now satisfied. You'd feel pretty good, wouldn't you? Amen. (laughs) Guys, that's why we worship God. Because your mortgage ain't nothing compared to what you owed God. And it's been wiped clean. Because one with an immense wealth of righteousness came along and absorbed your debt. 
But imagine if the news got better with the bank. They said, not only do you not owe us anything anymore, you also have a checking and a savings account with us, and both of them have been credited at $10 million. So you have $10 million towards your retirement, and you have $10 million you can spend right now. That's the second half of the gospel. Not just that we're not guilty, but that we are credited with a righteousness that Jesus accomplished throughout his life. Remember what happened after the baptism of Jesus? He goes out into the wilderness and is tempted without sin. It's what the author of Hebrews says. He then understands us because he suffered everything like us. It's just he didn't fail the way that we did. Israel goes out into the wilderness, they fail. You've gone out into the wilderness, you've failed. Jesus went out into the wilderness, never did. And his entire life had absolutely nothing but perfection, stacked up minute after minute, day after day, month after month, year after year, a perfect performance of how humans should live. And if you're a Christian, what God sees when he looks at you is that. Not your last week. We blow it all the time with people, and when people treat us the way that our sins deserve, it's only right. Because we break trust and we act like jerks. And if people don't trust us and don't enjoy us, it's kind of the stuff that we deserve. And we fail God in so many other ways, so it would just be natural for us to think that when you come to God in prayer, he's like, you again? Gosh, don't you remember what you did yesterday? How about you just take a break from me for a day, huh? Because, man, that was a really rough day we had yesterday. It's not the way he welcomes you into a day. It's as almost as though he says, my son, my daughter, come on in, I've been waiting. And that's because of not just the forgiveness of our sins, but because of Christ's, oh, sorry, I skipped a blank. There is an eternal judgment then that comes in justification. And this is that God brings eternal judgment into the present. If he declares that this is going to be true forever, then it means it's true today. And that's because of the third blank there, that Christ's righteousness is credited to us. We might be halfway. I'm not sure where we're at, but let's move on. Not only does God take any one of those soldiers who now stand alive before the king and say, oh man, I am guilty of the sin against you. And he says, actually, you're not. I've forgiven your rebellion against me. But I can't stand you. I'm not going to punish you, but I really just don't like you at all. That's actually not the experience of the soldiers. Those soldiers, forgiven of their sin, brought back to life so that they can stand before the king, are not just declared legally okay, they're actually declared friends of God. And that's what point B is. It's reconciliation. That every rebel against the king can experience not antagonism, but friendship. Restoring friendship and harmony and communion with those who have been estranged. Now imagine if that rebellious soldier dragged into the courtroom of the king, forgiven of his sin, who then looks into the eyes of the king judge and sees actually affection rather than wrath, approval rather than disappointment, friendship. 
Imagine if the king is about to turn away and say, well, we're done here. And the soldier says, well, not yet. We're not done. I get that I deserved being penalized and I don't have to be. And I get that I didn't really see any reason for you to smile at me, but you've restored our friendship. But here's the thing. You've got a son and he eats way better than I do. He sleeps in a way better, comfortable and way more comfortable environment than I do. He's got better access to your riches. I'm just a soldier in your, ha- in your family, but you've got a prince and I'd really love to have his status in the kingdom. But what soldier would ever ask that? How audacious could you be? Is it not enough to be forgiven and reconciled to the king? No soldier would ever ask that, but the king still gave it. That's what adoption is. To be adopted is to be able to claim all that I just said there from the God of the universe. Not just that we'd be legally okay with him and not just that we'd be friends with him, but that we could belong to his family. J.I. Packer called this the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And yet it's what all those verses and so many others declare are true because of the work of God. To the end of that third paragraph, the picture is of a child who's tripped and fallen and is crying out in pain, Daddy, Daddy. That's the way the Spirit of God encourages us to relate to our Father because of the work of the Son. And that's just one of the many reasons that we name this church Trinity Church. It is because of these Trinitarian, point two, the Trinitarian benefits of adoption include having God, the Father of the universe, as our Father, Jesus, the Son of God, as our brother, and the Spirit as a mark of our ownership as God's children. So you're a rebellious soldier, reconciled to God, forgiven of your sin, and adopted into his family. The problem is this. You've never lived like a prince once in your life. You've been an idolater. You've never lived rightly for the king. And so the question is, in this life, between these moment-in-time decisions and the final day that we get to be in God's presence without any encumbrances of sin, how do we change? Let's deal with that in five minutes, shall we? Here are the things that we want you to know at Sovereign Grace Church. Point D is this work of God in sanctifying us. And so we call it sanctification, God's continuing work to make the believer holy by bringing the moral condition into conformity with their legal status. In other words, our goal is holiness. Now this is modeled after God but it's motivated by faith. And if we get this wrong, then the gospel breaks in us. The tension comes off the line because when we change, if we are seeing this modeled by ourselves or each other and motivated by guilt, do you understand how the machinery just doesn't work? 
The work of one Christian to another is to remember what Jesus has done perpetually. That's how we change. Holiness is not modeled by other believers, ultimately. Even Paul would say, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. The joy and the journey is of, of us walking is not to set any one of us at the head of any line and say, be exactly like this person or be exactly like that person. Though, let me just encourage the men's meeting because we've got, we've got a Paul in our midst who we get to hear from at that men's meeting. Hear how he's followed Christ. And then we get to point and say, let's follow Christ like that. That makes sense in our life. That makes sense in a Christian community to me because what we're doing is we're modeling ourselves ultimately after God, but we're motivated not by guilt, but by faith. And here's what I'm going to do for the next part, just so that we can kind of respect time now. I'm going to shoot a quick video when I get home and I'm going to take care of the next few blanks. All right? So here's what I'm very aware of. There's a lot more to say about this battle And if I try to say it now, my guess is, one, I'm stretching your attention a little too thin. And secondly, uh, I think I wouldn't be doing a service to this topic. But the point is, guys, we're still soldiers. And we're still in a battle. And there's a battlefield that's going on, but there is a battlefield of our hearts. And there's a battlefield that has real help. That's why those blanks are in here. So sign up for the email. We'll create this this video, and I'll send it out then so that we can spend a little bit more time thinking about the way sanctification works in a Christian community like ours. Let's skip all the way, though, to the last one, because this, to me, seems some good news we could celebrate together. Point E is the word glorification. Guys, this is where we're heading. We bring our failures, we bring our addictions, we lay them down at the foot of the cross, knowing that one day we won't have to do that anymore. One day there's no more tears, there's no more sin, there's no more sorrow, there's no more dying. Because the death that Christ had over sin, that initial D-Day kind of development in this war, finally has an actual VE day. Finally has a day where the battle is done. To be glorified means that we will one day be freed from all the effects of sin, its power, its penalty, and its pollution, and from the presence of death so that we can enjoy an eternity with God. And logically, this chain began with election, and just as assuredly, it will end with your, your glorification. You know what I try to say to people whenever they come struggling with sin? I try to say this is not the truest part about you. It feels like it. The shame, the guilt, the failure, the repetition, the cycle, the struggle. I know the way that condemnation works because I've felt it myself. But the thing I want to do is detach that from you and let you know it's not the truest thing about you. The truest thing about you is that you're redeemed by Jesus and he's going to see this work done 
all the way to the end. So if you fail or if you succeed, if you struggle or if you do a great job better than somebody else, you're never the hero. Three enemies of the gospel could be described as the times we succeed, the times we fail, and how we feel in the middle of it. If you wanted bigger words than that, legalism, condemnation, and emotionalism. Because the times that you succeed, they don't invalidate your need for the gospel. The times that you fail, they don't discount you from being able to access the gospel. And the way you feel, gosh, that just shouldn't matter at all, should it? So I end with this quote. We will never find happiness by looking at our prayers or our doings or our feelings. It's what Jesus is, not what we are that gives rest to the soul. So church, keep your eye on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon thy mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him. Help others follow hard after him. And he will never fail you. Spurgeon said it well, didn't he? Let's sing it well together. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray together. Father, there is no better news, no gooder gospel than this good news that you've proclaimed. The king of the universe whom we could behold still reigns and is defeating our rebellion in us and through us. We've earned so much less than what you've given us, but we're so grateful for your grace within us. So Father, I pray, receive glory now. This truth has changed us. I pray that we would experience it a little bit more by the power of your spirit so that we could give credit and glory to Jesus now. In his name, amen.